0: Entrepreneur, investor, and scale-up specialist, Nick Bradley.
1: Hi everyone, Nick Bradley here. Welcome to another episode of Scale Up Your Business, another great conversation for you today. So I'm delighted to have on the podcast, Spencer Lodge. Now Spencer is a sales genius. So we're going to get into all things sales, prospecting, winning new business, conversion today. He's known as one of the world's most dynamic sales trainers. He's the founder of Blue Sky Thinking Group, which is a nine-figure business. And he delivers in- incomparable high-energy sales workshops that are some of the most in demand on the planet. So we're going to get into all of that today. I've covered so much on marketing in, you know, probably because it's my background. So I thought it's about time we bring in a sales expert with highly effective sales techniques to help you, your businesses achieve significant growth. Now, not only is Spencer, as I said, an expert in selling, he's also the host of the award-winning show, the Spencer Lodge podcast, which has had some of the most powerful industry experts on it, including Tony Robbins, Dr John DiMartini, Gary Vinerchuk and Grant Cardone. So, you know, excuse us a little bit here because we do go backwards and forwards with our podcasting geekery, if that's a word. I think it is. I've just made it up. But we do also get into a whole heap of other stuff around the importance of the commercial side of business, the importance of being detailed and forensic around, you know, measurement and data and the qualities that are really important if you are going to be well-classed in selling, which in many cases is one of the lifebloods of business. So that's the show today, heaps in it, lots of fun. Spencer is a character and a half, so you're going to enjoy the conversation. He's based in Dubai, so he's got much nicer weather than we've got here in the UK as I record this, but it's a great fun chat nonetheless. So welcome to scale up your business, Spencer Lodge. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Scale Up Your Business podcast. I am delighted to have with me today a guest I've wanted to have on the show for some time, but our diaries are finally matched. We've managed to make it happen. Spencer Lodge, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Nice to be invited. There we go. Well, we met, we sort of met on Clubhouse, which I've talked a little bit about on the podcast before. Uh, And just before we pressed record, we had a bit of a love-hate conversation about that. So we might touch on that a little bit. But um, I first heard of you actually from a friend of mine, Sebastian Bates, actually, who lives in Dubai, where you're based. Uh, Yeah, I know. Yeah, we didn't talk much about that. But he said, do you know Spencer Lodge? And I said, no, no, the name rings a bell. And then when I did a bit of research, I... I probably knew you more for your amazing podcast, um, the Spencer Lodge podcast and some of the guests you've had on, but uh, then I did a little bit more digging and you know, you're know you an expert in sales, business development, prospecting, uh, you have a nine figure business which is focused on sales training and all that sort of stuff. Um, I know you like to climb very big hills, hills, mountains. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on who I'm
0: talking to. If it's my mum, it's it's the North Face of the Eiger. If it's if it's my mates, then it's a, it's a something closer like Snowden.
1: <laughs> okay, right, and then then Everest comes in at some point. But um, yeah, like listen, you, you know, you've got a whole heap of diverse, different stuff that you're interested in. So I've been um, very much looking forward to the conversation. So let's let's kick off, um, a little bit on kind of you know your background and your story, um, how you've ended up in Dubai and all that sort of stuff. It'd be great to kind of just get to know you a bit more.
0: Working class kid, got no real qualifications at school, was one of the kids that stared out of the window. Parents got divorced when I was seven. Dad went bankrupt. Mum was bankrupt because of it as well. And they both had to rebuild. And I think that watching, when dad went bankrupt at seven, I don't really think I really registered apart from the fact that the boats and the fancy cars disappeared and mum and dad weren't together. But as I started to get older and watch them struggle and then build and grow, I think that, that really rubbed off on me as a kid um i didn't do well at school i don't know why i was bullied quite heavily at school and stuff like that so it just didn't resonate with me and when i left school um i i, I started to find that i could do things and and you know and it wasn't you know anything fancy it was like i could do so i could collect glasses in the pub um i could you know i could wash up i could clean, clean cars mow lawns all that kind of stuff and, I, and, I, and someone was giving me a fiver to wash a car and i'm like oh yeah i'll have some of that and um, it was it, it meant something and you know my, my stepfather said to me right you're going to go and study construction engineering because you need to study something and i did a yts scheme when i was paid 27 pounds a week to go to college one day a week and i was working with site engineers and site contractors and stuff like that and again they just terrified me and run around for me threatening to throw me in buckets of water and tie me up on scaffolding and stuff as a kid as an apprenticeship i suppose into that kind of world oh wow and it just wasn't me i didn't fit into i can't I can't do stuff with my hands. I can't, I can't put a plug on a wire. I can't, You know. I remember the first apartment I ever bought in London, it was was beautiful, this place. And we had this cupboard and I had to put shelves up. And so I went to the DIY store, got the drills, got the screws, got the brackets. And I'm like, right, I'm having this. And it took me the best part of half a day to put these shelves up. And at the end I was like, Looked at my wife. I'm like shelves. I have made shelves, and she was like, oh, "Oh man!" And she put she put a pot on the end of the shelves of something, some, something heavy, and the shelves just flipped up and fell over because I put the straights too too close.
1: i have got, got to share something with you. First and foremost, like there's three things you said in that in that in that, for that couple of minutes there, which are similar. Like I had I had my my dad left when I was two. That caused a whole heap of chaos. Then I got bullied quite heavily at school. Uh, And I am, I am the worst DIY. Like the other day I tried to, um, this is, this is really embarrassing. I tried to fix the toilet holder, right? Literally like just put some, some screws in the wall and the whole thing kind of just fell apart and and like the whole thing fell back into the toilet. And my wife's like, seriously, like you are just not capable.
0: I I get it. You know, I have so so much empathy for people like that. My dad though. My dad's not far from Newcastle, and in, on his farm, he has got, I think, three or four Land Rovers that are of various ages, some recent, some from the 1950s. And he can take them apart, put them back together again, take them apart, and do stuff with them. And I'm like, how do you do that? I can't, I can't even hold a yeah.
1: screwdriver. I know. It's crazy, isn't it? Like, but people have got different different abilities and things, whatever. But I, I've got the same sort of problems. So my my um, father in law comes around to visit us, and he's like a handy guy. He used to work on Boeing jets as an engineer, and like he'll just come and fix everything that I've screwed up for the last few months that they've been around. Yeah,
0: about
1: <laughs> exactly right. So, so, but, but that sort of, but, you know, there's a couple of things in there, the entrepreneurial thing, you know, the idea that you started to get a spark around, you know, working in pubs, you can make some money by, you know, take sort of digging into things. Where, where did that then take you? So, cause you you studied, you said, so, but, but that wasn't was the
0: ITS scheme for, I don't know, six months, didn't enjoy that. And so mum's like, well, you've got, you've got to get a job. And so then I went and became a ski instructor because that was something I was really passionate about. I worked on a dry ski slope in East London um, and then went and skied overseas in the winter season. So I did that for a couple of years. Loved that. Learned how to be a ski tech. And so skiing was my kind of thing. And then one summer mum said to me, look, you've got to get a proper job now. She ran a recruitment consultancy. And so she got me three job interviews. One was a trainee car salesman. The other one was a trainee estate agent. And the other one was a trainee photocopier salesman. And so uh, the, the, the car salesman was a BMW showroom. So I'm like, I, I went to the interviews, I got the job at the BMW showroom And I'm like, I get a 316i, how about that?
1: Oh, wow, <laughs> what a car. <laughs>
0: I'm like, this is huge, <laughs> it was like I have a 3 Series BMW. And I was like, literally, I got this car and I loved it. I got sacked after a month for having a bad attitude. And so, oh. and so it sounds devastating. Because you know, when you get this car, when you're that age, I'm what, 18, 19, everyone in my world knew I had this car and I only had it for a month. I had to go with a telephone.
1: To oh my God. At everyone. At least, it was, so you've got all your friends with Citroen Saxo's, like, you know, modded up like Max Power, right? And then you turn up in, in, the, in the thing that's gonna, you know, whoever the local hairdresser is, is gonna love you, Spencer. <laughs> You're the cool dude on the street for a month, for four weeks. weeks, So, why did you? So, you got sacked for bad attitude. What what specifically? It wasn't hard work. I take it. Was it just 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 a different environment? You weren't used to it. You were coming into. What was it?
0: and I wasn't uh, a suit, you know, I'd never worn a suit before. I had to wear a suit and I was a little bit cocky and I don't think I, you know, understood the world I was in and the environment I was in. So then I got, I took the next job, which was a trainee photocopier salesman and that's where I learned how to sell. That's literally where I, I was taught everything really really you know when you're that young as well it will resonate with you a lot and you'll soak it in because you're a sponge but I, my job for 18 months was to go and knock on uh, 100 doors every morning and so that was ec3 was my patch so i'd go to 100 different companies get a compliment slip name of the office manager and then um, what office equipment they had once i got 100 compliment slips i used to stop get a petrol station sandwich go back to the office and then they used to have to stand at my desk and make 100 cold calls and when I first learned to do that though, this is the, the most important lesson that I had in there was learning the, the importance of understanding the impact of rejection. And so my boss said to me when I first did my, my day on the calls, make a hundred cold calls, but I want you to go and find me 99 no's. They didn't say find me a yes as well. He just said, I want you to find me 99 no's. So I called people up, I was calling these people, I was getting F off and B off or whatever it may be that people slamming their phone down on me. And, and it was like, okay, no, have a good day then. So, Cause I was looking for no's. And so as I was looking for more and more no's, I, I was essentially getting the no's so that I could be approved by my boss. And so I got to the end of the day, I said, there's the 99 no's, he gave me a high five, and said, great job boy, I'll see you tomorrow. Next day, he said the same. So I made hundred cold calls, got 99 no's and he gave me a high five and a hug. He said, that's fantastic, brilliant. He said, I want you to understand. He said, you're never gonna get a yes, unless you've earned it. And the way you earn a yes at your stage in your career is by finding 99 no's. And I was like, oh, so I need the no's to get the yes. He's like, exactly. So go find no's. And then from that moment onwards, they taught me then how to turn a phone call into an appointment and a booking and a potential prospect and stuff. But it had made me very quickly understand that I needed to get no's. No's were important to gain. Whereas a lot of people in sales or in any type of business are so intimidated and so f- affected by rejection that it can almost paralyze them. And, you know, f- f- they, they can't pick the phone up or they can't send an email or they can't send a message because they fear what the outcome might be. Whereas for me, it's like, no, I need people to say no. So if people say no, that I'm doing well.
1: How did you feel about that? Because I, I totally um, get what you're saying here. Like the, the people who I've worked with who are exceptional at, let's call it sales, and we can define, you know, what that is in a minute, but, you know, they, they tend to sort of have pretty you know, thick skin. Right. Did you find that when you were getting the nose and the F-offs and all the stuff that was coming on, did you find that difficult? Was the first part of that, oh my God, or, or it was, it's just, you know, your psychology was already, that's what I was looking for. I was prepared for it or you were trained on it. How did that yes, all work? The
0: boss said to me, I want you to go and find nose. You must find nose. And uh, it's my first few days in the job. I don't know any different. I don't know sales. I don't understand it. He's, but he's telling me, go find nose. And because he's telling me to go and find those no's, I'm passionate to find them for him, you know? I want to please him, so I'm searching for the no's. I, was th- I wasn't the brightest kid in the room, you know? I wasn't hyper-intelligent, I just did as I was told. And I got gratitude and appreciation at the end of the day for getting them. And that's a, that's a really important lesson because someone saying to me, find the no's, they didn't get to the end of the day and then say to me, oh, you did shit there, didn't you? He actually said, well done, great job. And I'm like, yes, drove home
1: happy as Larry. There's something about you in this though, Spencer, because like, you know, like there would have been people around you, you know, your colleague, let's say, who would have been told exactly the same thing by this guy, you know, coaching you, and then they wouldn't have been able to put up with the rejection. Yes. Okay. Um, 16. How bad? That, that, That's the bit I'm trying to get to is like, why did you find that? I'm not going to say easier, but you, you had the grit to, you know, to go through that because maybe, maybe the gratitude you got from your boss at that time was more important. Something like that.
0: Maybe it's gratitude. Maybe that's something that with being bullied because... Yeah. I, I had a massive drive to prove the bullies wrong. So you know, Tony Robbins says the greatest revenge is massive success, and and so for me, there was an inner drive in me that I couldn't I couldn't utilize while I was a kid at school. That was I will show you how dare you, you know. And it's almost like when you hear a story about people say, you know what, you know that bloke that, that, that fronted me out, you know what, I should have tearing his face off. I should have beat him up. And, and people talk about it after the event. Well, when I was at school and I was getting bullied, I didn't have the, the guts or maybe the, the will or the desire or I was too scared to give that guy a right hand or, or kick him in the nuts and run or whatever it might be. And so I really wanted to prove to these three individuals that I went to school with that were horrible to me, OK, that I was going to be better than them. And so I wasn't going to get phased by much. And maybe that played a part in it as well.
1: Yeah, no, I can get that. Now that's that's certainly, I mean, I had a massive chip on my shoulder. And I say it like that again in in a positive way because I needed to when I started to change things in my life after being bullied as a youngster, it was really about proving that I could make something of myself when everyone else thought I couldn't. You know, and that that drove me to do a lot of things that I think, you know, I look at my kids now, I've got a nine and a six year old, and their life is not quite as difficult, <laughs> right? And that bothers me because the stuff that I went through as a kid, I think, you know honed me into being tougher and stronger and it served me massively as my career you
0: know it's really so. interesting you said it because i had a real dilemma with this my kids both went to very expensive schools and stuff but my youngest got bullied badly my eldest if you, if you got, came close to her she'd have you around the, the neck and up against the wall but my youngest was timid and while she was being bullied and we were talking to the teachers there was a big part of me that was like i think that's going to make her stronger So I didn't want it to be give her protection or or do something about it. It was almost like I I actually think she needs to be bullied if she's going to accept bullying and then she can use that uh, later in life. Only from my own experience. And I know there'll be lots of people listening, going, "How, how could you be like that to your child? But there's something in it for me that with her, it's like, you know what? You know, I think that I think there's some mileage in it.
1: Yeah, I do too, and 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 the way I sort of term it is creating adversity, right? So we we do it still quite subtly. Like we'll go away on a holiday to, you know, not necessarily a resort with lots of pools. We might go to Thailand and go and work in some of the some of the places that have still been affected by the massive tsunami of two decades ago. But just so the girls can see that not everyone has a life which is you know, luxury and big houses, all those sort of things. But um, yeah, no, I fully agree with that. And so what happens? So after that, so you, you kind of cut your teeth, so to speak, in this environment and proved that was, you found, did you feel that you were finding a niche for yourself at this point?
0: I got good at it. So I was. I worked as a trainee under a guy called David Thornton and <clears throat> David was in Scarborough and he wasn't much of a talker, but he, he understood time management and he started to bring in a packed lunch to work. And the packed lunch he was bringing to work, he brought in because he worked out it was costing him time to go and buy a sandwich. And so he worked out that during the course of a week, he would waste half an hour going backwards and forwards buying a sandwich, but that was two and a half hours a week. And it was just like, why would I waste two and a half hours a week? And there was a real lesson in time management and planning that I I didn't even realize I was learning in that moment, but it really resonated with me. So I learned and then after working with David for a while, I was earning really good money. I'm like, I need to do this myself now. I need to be a salesman myself. And David's like, no, no, whatever you do, no, we'll stay together, we'll work together because it's a good, good setup. Um, but eventually I, I pulled away and then I did it myself. Now, this is 1989, 1990, sorry, 19, yeah, 1990. And I'm earning good money. I'm earning like 50 grand a year, okay? All my mates are earning 15 grand a year. So I think, I think I'm amazing, yeah? but I'm spending more than 50 grand a year, you know, I'm <laughs> my, my, <laughs> I, I was spending way more than 50 grand a year. And it's like, this was back in the days of checkbooks and credit cards that, you know, check guarantee cards that went with your check. So it was a weird old experience. And then I went for a job in, uh, to a job recruitment company. Uh, what was it called? Uh, PMA, PMA recruitment in Tottenham Court Road. I met a guy called Doug, Doug Brain and John Celeste. I'm like, you're a sales company. I want to sell more stuff. I want to make more money. What can I do? And they're like, Franking machines. And I'm like, whoa, I didn't even know what one was. And I'm like, yeah, that's the thing. And they're like, there's two Franking Machines companies, and I can't, Pitney Bowes was one of them. We'll get you an interview. So I went for an interview, and I was confident and successful and, you know, looked the part. And I, you know, I've been selling color photocopiers for Canon and all that kind of stuff. I can do blooming Franking Machines. And they didn't give me the job. And I was like, how dare they? I'm a good catch. And um, so then I went for a job interview at a financial services company.
1: Well, but hold on, let's go back. Why didn't they give you the job? Oh, like, you went in there and said, you probably went in there and said, "Like, can sell, so this is easy, right? Like-
0: <laughs> I didn't get the job because I was probably a dick. <laughs> uh, I,
1: I've been. Right, well, there's another conversation about how many times I've been sacked for saying the the right thing in the right time, according to me. <laughs> but you know, everything's a gift, right? So you got a no there, a rejection there, but that's okay because you've had heaps of rejections on the phone for years, so that doesn't matter. And then, and then where did you end so up went next? For
0: a job interview for a financial planning company that had offices in in the Far East and in, in the Europe and stuff in Africa, and there was a job opportunity to go to go to the Far East. So I went for interview i remember the girl's name bryany she interviewed me i was 23 and i got got back and next day i got a phone call brian said you know what spence you're a fantastic candidate but we want people over the age of 25 and and you're just too young and so the answer is going to be no this time so i went to my mum i'm like mum they just said no she's like what are you going to do i'm like i'm going to find out what the boss's name is and so i drove next day i drove back up there to a place called dalling who which is near ipswich big bloody mansion house this guy had. And his name was Kevin Mudd. And I waited for him to come. I waited in his office in reception for three and a half hours. And eventually he came and he said, what are you doing? And I'm like, your recruiter won't give me a job. And I want a job and I think I should get a job. And I, I thought I'd come straight to the horse's mouth. And so he sat talking to me and a bizarre twist of fate happened in that conversation. My grandfather had just had a stroke. His father had just had a stroke. And they were both in the same hospital. Oh, wow. And it came out in conversation. And we both went from the interview to the hospital to both go and see my grandfather. He saw his father. And as we left the building, his office uh, to go to the get in the cars, he said, you've got to be in Hong Kong in seven days time. And that was my job.
1: Talk about serendipity and all that stuff, right? You know, things happen for a reason, you know, which I, I have more belief in that now than I ever have, right? But that's just because you're, you're, you're up from up north originally, right? No, I'm uh, from down. Is that where you're I'm from Essex originally. Okay. So what, what was the Newcastle thing? That was just a job. Uh, at the no, time. my dad, my Newcastle where my dad is. Oh, okay. Right. Got it. So, so, but this, but it's have to be in the same hospital. Like that's kind of random. Isn't yeah. Gallywood it? Hospital in Chelmsford
0: in Essex. Mental.
1: Yeah. That's what I mean. Like that, that's, those things happen for a reason. So you ended up getting the job clearly. And then, and this was your first, First time actually going to a different country to to work in, yeah, so in a sales. Go and live
0: and work. I spent a bit of time in West Africa and my dad was in the oil industry. So I spent a bit of time there. It was my first job overseas. And my mates were like, why are you leaving London? We have a great time. Covent Garden Friday night, you know, we come, punching and Judy, you're not going to miss all that. You're going to go clubbing. Oh, and uh, that's another one. Yeah. And so, and so, yeah, I took the job, went to Hong Kong. I was in Hong Kong for a short period of time, went into Thailand, lived in Bangkok, and learned about selling financial advice. And I remember my first day on the job, these guys were making two or three appointments a day for prospecting. And my first day on the job, I made 14 appointments in the space of two or three hours. And and I'm like looking at these guys going, why do they take so long? Um, And they're like, what's he doing that's different? And so clearly I had some telephone technique that I'd learned while I was working in the office equipment world, transferred it across to financial services. It meant that prospecting wasn't difficult for me. And what I then learned is that there were three ways to get prospects. One was to cold call, the other one was to network, and the other one was to get referrals. But there's one thing I hate more than anything, and that's networking. I hate going and standing in a room with a bunch of strangers, having small talk, talking, it's just not me. I don't like it, I'd rather rather put my head in the oven than have to go and do that on a regular basis. And then, so my alternatives were to, to cold call or to get referrals. Well, we all know that we'd rather call referrals than call cold people. And so I just made it my business to be good at getting referrals. And I was better than that than anyone in my industry. I wasn't the best closer. I wasn't the best uh, financial advisor. I wasn't the best salesperson, but I was the best at getting referrals. And because of that, I always had a full diary of meetings, which meant I had a full diary of prospects, which meant I was always taking on new clients. And when you're in that mode of taking new clients on, plus doing more business with your existing clients, your income can multiply very quickly. And that's what happened to me.
1: So to drill into, into that, so you went into a, a different country, right, where you don't have an established network, let's say, right, um, and you actually probably don't have referrals other than, you know, <clears throat> I'm just trying to work this out. So you must have grafted a bit of cold calling to build yeah. a network or something. So you, what, I, what I worked out is that
0: so, so I probably did a cold call for the first three months until I'd really mastered referrals. And then for me, I knew and these are my numbers so I'll share them with you I knew I needed to see 10 new prospects a week and so I knew to see 10 I needed to have 15 in my diary because I needed to be some slippage people rescheduling and stuff. Yep. so 15 in my diary and I knew I needed to get three referrals to get one meeting in my diary so that meant I needed 45 referrals a week to get 15 meetings in the diary to see 10 so I knew that number which meant I needed nine every day which meant I needed four and a half in the morning and four and a half in the afternoon. And so my objective every day was to make sure I got those nine before lunchtime. And so if that meant I have, you know, I I I would get stuff out of people, you know, people would give me one or two referrals, but I knew if they'd give me one or two, I knew they'd give me three or four. And I knew if they gave me three or four, they'd give me four or five. And so one of the techniques I used in the olden days, we used to use a paper fact find. And this fact find on the back of the fact find had introductions, referrals one to three so you could write three names numbers or whatever it may be of the people that, that you're getting referred to well i redesigned it and put 15 on the back so there was 15 slots in the back to put referrals on and i just showed to the client okay most people give me 15 don't worry if you give me 10 let's give it a go <laughs> and, and i just i put my head down i am cracked on
1: so you're definitely getting more than three, even if you, yeah, fantastic. And, and just on that, so let's, let's just play around a bit because I love, I love to have some practicality in my um, conversations, right? So people can like listen to this and go away and do something, particularly if they're having a challenge. So let's just talk about asking for referrals for a second. So is there, I mean, there is obviously a bit of a skill and experience of this, and there's obviously just asking, <laughs> but how do you, when you teach and you train this, how do you advise, you know, someone does that well?
0: So the first thing you have to do is understand there must be a process. So I have, I have, my sales process has four steps to it. So the first part of the process is building rapport. And I, and, and, that, and again, people don't get that. They think it's just getting to know someone. Mine's structured. So there's three parts to rapport. So there's, you know, we call it work, social, family. So I talk to people about their careers. I then talked about them what they do outside of work, and then, I talk to them about their family. And I, and I literally am asking them questions so that they can feed me answers, but also I can listen to what they're saying and, and it can resonate with me so that I can remember it in case there's any opportunities later on. When you've asked somebody to speak for 15 minutes by asking them questions, they know it's a natural time to pass over to somebody else to speak. And that I, leave, the prospect, was speaking. Now they're happy for me to talk and I know they're going to listen. So, then I explain what I do and how I work, and I'll put a load of the fancy stuff away. But in simple terms, I have some ground rules. Number one, okay, we have terms of business that I set out at the beginning. This is how I work. This is what I'm going to do for you. Okay, this is what I'm going to do for me. Okay, and this is how the meeting's going to progress. If it progresses that way, we go and do business. If it doesn't, then we don't. So, I'm very clear at the beginning of what's involved. And then I also bring up referrals right at the beginning. And I just say to people, have you ever, ever had to make a cold call in your life? And some people will say yes. If they say no, like if they say yes, I'm like, did you enjoy it? And they're like, no, yeah. And the ones that haven't made a cold call, did you ever receive a cold call? Yes. Did you enjoy it? No. It's shit, isn't it? Yeah, I don't want to do that either, okay? So the way that I work with my clients is rather than to cold call, I get my clients to introduce me to other people that I can bring the same value to as I'm going to bring to you today. Now, I don't want any referrals from you right now, but if I bring value to you today, at the end of the meeting, I'm going to ask you to introduce me to three or four people that you know that I don't, that I can offer the same value to. Does that seem a fair request? And so then at that stage, they agree. So now I've got a clear understanding with them that if I'm going to bring them value, they're going to give me referrals. I then go into the fact-finding process, which is stage three, where I learn about their situation and find out what their problems are. Once I've got a problem that they need a solution to, then great, there's a sales opportunity. There's no point selling to somebody that doesn't have a problem, that you, you, an imaginary thing you want to solve just because. They need to tell you the problem, and then you create the solution for them. You go through that process, you build out the solution. Now it's your time turn to go off, go off and do some homework for a couple of days and find out the solution. But at the end of the meeting, I say, right, we've gone through lots of stuff today. Tell me, what did you think was the most valuable? We spoke about, remember, this is financial planning. So we spoke about that money in the bank, you not getting a great rate of return. Was it valuable debating and discussing what you could do? We spoke about your kids' education and the future of that. Was it interesting going through the numbers and understanding what's involved? We spoke about your retirement planning provision and so on yeah and so and uh, was that valuable yes was that valuable yes okay great so we've got three areas there that were really valuable to you at the beginning of the meeting we spoke about referrals and i said if i bring value to you that you'll introduce me to some other people so these are the three areas i've brought value let me just get my pen get your phone let's have a look right now who i can talk to that i can bring the same value to in the future so
1: that can happen Um, just to go into into instruction i love process as much as anything right so this, this sort of, let's call it structured conversation could be the first conversation. It's the first meeting, yeah. So you're asking referrals right from the outset. You're setting the intention Absolutely. from the outset. Absolutely. Because a lot of people kind of ask for referrals at the end of an engagement and it kind of feels like a, a desperate ask, but you're setting it out before you've even really done work with someone.
0: Well, you've, you've got you've got to, well, You're adding value to the meeting, but. Yeah, you, you, you set it up at the beginning and then you go for them at the end and they know. Now, you might get some resistance. You might get people saying stuff. And then I'm like, Look, have you ever heard of the 80 20 principle, Mr. Prospect? In my industry, most people that are offering financial advice spend 80% of their time looking for new clients and 20% of their time looking after clients. I won't go like that. I spend 80% of my time looking after clients and 20% of my time looking for new clients. Now, when it comes to your financial advice, what do you want? Me spending most of my time looking after your money or do you want me spending most of my time looking for new clients? And they'll say, no, spend my time looking after my money. Great, well, then you're going to have to play a part in this as well. That means you're going to need to introduce me to people. You know, people that I don't know. People don't talk about their money because people sometimes are ashamed. okay? or sometimes they've made bad decisions or they just don't understand it enough to want to do anything about it. That's why I've got to get out there and help people make the right decisions for their future. So there's people, you know, get your phone out. Let's go through them. And I like to go to people's offices as well, because in their office, I can walk around the office and I can scout people out as well.
1: Love it, and does that structure, I mean, obviously you've got m- many more tools in the tool bag, but does that structure work across multiple industries? I mean, obviously we talked about it in the context of you are giving value, information-based value, advice, experience around financial you know, capability, et cetera. But would that work across other industries or do you change the model slightly depending on the industry, depending on the circumstance? So
0: I believe that everyone can give referrals. Let's say you're dealing with a, a B2B scenario and you're dealing with a HR director of a, a chemical company. HR directors know other HR directors Mm, they just do because they they, they're kind of they're connected to them on LinkedIn or they've worked in other companies in the past they know you know people that work in 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 design engineering you know that they know other people in their same field they they just do and so you've got to you've got to be prepared to ask for them and sometimes it is look I want to grow my business I you know people that I don't know I could do with some help would you mind helping me and and people very invariably if you offer them some form of, of of honesty and transparency in what you're trying to do, rather than a cloak and dagger approach to getting them, then then people generally are kind if you give them the chance to be.
1: Yeah, it's it's funny. I was reading. um, I had Jay Abraham on my podcast a few um, weeks back now, and he's got like a ninety three referral process system. It's like you know his big thing is granularity, right? But I was looking through it the other day. I was talking about it with someone else, and it was really good because. But most of it came back to the fact that it's so. Some of the things are just super simple, but people just don't ask. Right, they just don't. And people, I think about when people ask me. Right. Particularly if I've, you know, I know them, there's rapport, there's trust and I, and I have got great service. I don't have a problem referring, but it's interesting how some people have an issue with the ask when actually the response is probably going to be favorable in most, most occasions.
0: Again, it's the fear of rejection, isn't it? It's the same old thing. What if they say no? But you remember in a selling situation, what's more important to me, I can sell something to a prospect. Okay. Or I can get five referrals, which gives me five more opportunities. So what, what's more important? And a lot of salespeople, the deal is the most important thing. Well, to me, it's not. If I get the deal and I get no referrals, then that's the end of the line. So for me, the referrals are the number one thing for me to get. So if I, if I don't get the deal, but I get referrals, I've won.
1: Yeah, so I love that thinking too. I mean, one of the things I was taught when I was kind of running sales and marketing teams, my background was predominantly marketing. But one of the things we used to say around the sales side or the commercial aspect of that was the activity levels matter. So, you know, if you've only got two or three, let's say, you know, prospects and you've got a target to achieve for your company or whatever else, you know, you're going to show up in a pretty, I'm going to say desperate state to close those three. But if your pipeline's 20 and the pipeline's constantly building, the activity levels are there, I I tend to find that the sales would just drop. I mean, it's not as simple as that, but you've got, you've you've worked the the, the sort of opportunities. So therefore your ability to get desperate on the close is not as, is not as full on. I call it,
0: I call it the rule of 21. Always have 21 prospects because you'll have seven say yes, seven say no, and seven say maybe. And that's fine. You're still going to get seven deals that month. Always have 21.
1: Is that what you teach? I mean, when you go into a, and when you're going into sort of sales organizations and stuff, obviously there's heaps of stuff that you go into. We're not going to have time to cover everything today. But when it comes to to that type of rhythm or structure, give us the high level of kind of what a world-class sales function, what are some of the principles that they have in place that you recommend when you go into these companies?
0: Look, I think that the the problem most companies actually have is that they believe that their salespeople need to be better. The actual problem isn't the salespeople. 99% of the time with companies that I work with, the problem is the business owner. They're the issue. They're the people people that may have had success themselves in the past and just want these people to perform in the same way. Then it's the second tier of leadership. Under the people that own the business, that's that management tier. The Managers don't get trained in sales. What happens is you're a good salesman. You do well. You get a high five. You get an award, a trophy, a certificate, or whatever it is. Promotion. Because I want some more significance because I've worked my nuts off. Right, you can be a manager. And, and, And that's how they get promoted into management. Nobody's teaching them the job. And then... What happens is they, they, they don't know how to lead people. And so for me, it's teaching the managers how to do the right thing and teaching the managers how to teach their staff, how to understand. You know, Jack Welch has got a great approach with a 20 60, 20 principle. You've got your top 20%. They're motivated like crazy. They don't need motivation. They just need love and, and recognition. So to remember that. You've got your bottom 20%. Get rid of them because they're in the wrong job. And then the middle 60%, actually, they could be good, but train them as a group. OK, keep them as a group, keep them as a squadron, OK, and train them and allow the, the, the successes to rise and let them move into the top 20. But you'll always have that. And I think managing a team of people that way, I think, is really effective. And to be foolish enough to think people are going to work as hard as you or people are going to achieve things that you've achieved. If they don't know the things that you know, I think it's a little bit nuts
1: yeah, and I often say the bottleneck is, you know when I'm working with businesses on scale up, the bottleneck is usually the founder. You know sometimes it's the whole leadership team, depending on what the values and culture is like, but quite often it's expectations that are not communicated or or set through the business, particularly as the business gets bigger. Yeah. but I want to ch- touch on one other thing you said there, which is partly about the the mindset, if you like, or the attitude of the leader. but what what about the 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 balance between the structure, the sales process structure? versus, you know, the capability of the salespeople. If you had to if you had to have a world class team of Michael Jordans versus, you know, a, a great process, a great playbook, which is the one that's most effective or is it a balance between the two?
0: You, you you will never have you will never in any business have that. It would be, you know, if you actually look at it, I'd rather have I'd rather have five hundred plodders than ten superstars. Um, or I'd rather have 10 superstars than 500 plotters, different business owners look at it in different ways. I think that, 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 that every company needs a system. They need a system and a, and a process that everybody can learn a tried and tested methodology. Now, when people get really good at it and they want to add their flavor, a sprinkle here, a sprinkle there to make it better because they think they're better, great. But there needs to be a system and a process that everyone can learn from the beginning all the way through. Because when you have effective processes in place and everyone understands them, there's no ambiguity. When you've got everybody doing what they want to do because they all think they're different or their prospects are different or their clients are different or their industry is different or whatever it may be, all you end up getting is a very disorganized bunch of people that you can't really understand and and, and motivate as well.
1: And when you go into an organization and you start to look at, let's say say the, the, the theory or the thesis is that they're performing as well as they possibly could be, is that the first thing you look for? Oh. Did you look for that structure, that process? Uh, yeah, I want to know
0: what the sales process is. I want to know, what, you know, because the, everyone blames everyone when it doesn't work. The salespeople are blaming the boss for the lead gen, the, the, or the training, the boss is blaming them for being lazy. There's just all chaos going on because no one's taking responsibility. So I want to know what the process is. I want to know that steps are in place. You know, I want to understand if everyone's been taught how to make a phone call. I want to understand if everyone's been taught how to use the CRM and it's being used efficiently. Most sales companies are rubbish with CRMs. They've got fancy CRMs, companies spend a lot of money on them, but they're absolutely rubbish because half the sales folks are like, well, I haven't got the time to fill it in. I'm too busy and all that kind of stuff. We all know the data. The data is the truth. The opinion's rubbish. The data is the truth. And if you haven't got good data, then you know nothing. And so for me, getting that right and understanding, real deep understanding is how, how are we uh, interpreting the data that we're getting? And is the data, the correct data is critical to knowing what's going on?
1: Yeah, that's how I run a lot of the businesses that I have that I run from afar. I have to look at metrics on a basis, you know, and have key drivers that I can't do it any other way. You know, it's if you're an owner investor,
0: though. they will look at other people. So they'll look at, I don't know, let's say there's a, a company that's an agency running PPC campaigns or whatever it may be for them. They'll measure the data coming to them. Well, oh, you're not generating enough leads for us, you know, let's have a look at this data. But they don't want to, they don't want to be measured on their own data. <laughs> it's really funny.
1: Yeah, it's too exposing. That's why. <laughs> it's, like, I, it's a little bit like, you know, we should all budget, right? And, and you know, use Spendy and all that sort of thing or something, you know, but people don't, right? They, don't, they want to know the truth. <laughs> um, last question on this, on this part, um, as I said before, my background's marketing. Marketing's evolved massively over the last two decades. So beforehand, my background was brand and now everything's kind of digital and you've got social and content, and all these different things. H- how do you think sales has evolved in the same way or has it? Because there's different tools and techniques with marketing, and obviously sales has had to to work, you know, in com, in conjunction with that. But how has sales changed over the last decade, in your opinion?
0: Okay, so there's there's kind of like the old school and the new school, and and, and what, I, yeah. what I what I what I like about the new school is that there's lots of technology to help, and it just comes back to the CRM thing. If you don't use the technology, then you might as well stay using a pen and paper and you know a card box with looking January to December and one and a to Z in the other. You know, the, the the fact is, people are still people. And people, look. Go to the go to the department. DFS has always got a sale on. Has had the same sale on for the last ten years. You know, people are still falling for it. Okay, people love a half price sale. They love the January sales. They love the Boxing Day sales. They love the Black Monday sales. Why? You know, if you go to a car dealership, but the car salesman said, you know what, I'll get you a good deal today. We've got a special offer going on. People get sucked in. So we've got to remember that people are people. I think what's changed is the way that people consume information to create trust for somebody. So nowadays, if you know, I'm on LinkedIn, for example, an awful lot. And so if I message somebody I don't know and they go and check my LinkedIn profile, they can see a lot of content. So they can they can they, they, they often feel like they know me already, even though they may not. And so that familiarity, that opportunity to create that familiarity um, is, is enabling us to create trust with people that maybe we've not had touch points on before. But I, I really do believe if, if you're selling one-to-one and you're sat with one person, the person that has the most conviction is the person that's gonna persuade the other. You know, if I could say to you, it rained yesterday and you say to me, no, it didn't. I bet you 500 quid it rained yesterday, mate. All of a sudden you're like, oh, did it? Now, if you come back to me and say, well, I bet you £10,000 it didn't rain yesterday, Spence, then I'm like, oh, maybe I'm wrong. So the person that, that, that has the most conviction generally is the person that will convince or persuade the other. But the, most, the easiest way to understand sales is go find people's problems, bring solutions to their problems, and you don't even have to use the word sales as part of your thought process All you have to do is solve people's problems. And that has been the same since the beginning of time. And whether those problems are now online, whether those problems are offline, doesn't matter. The fact is people have problems. OK, I don't know how to use a piece of technology. If somebody said to me, OK, do you struggle with that? Yeah. OK. Would you like me to help you? Yeah. OK. It's very easy for a sale or a contract to be put together around that kind of stuff. So. Yeah, you know, you know, I, I work with financial advisors nowadays, and I train them in the UK. And and they talk about life insurance. It's a really easy thing to talk about. Okay. They say uh, they sell a mortgage now. When someone has a mortgage and they're married, they need life insurance in case they die. All right, they have, they need it because if they die, their wife's going to have to pay the mortgage. But you get life insurance. There's no mortgage to pay. Everyone's happy. Okay. but they don't ask the question. And like, oh, you know, maybe we should maybe we should talk about life insurance. And the customer says, No, nah, I don't want that. Thanks. Well. I'm really sorry. Um, Let's just imagine you're dead right now and your wife has to pay the mortgage and she has no income because she's looking after your kids. Are you happy for her to have to go and find another man to support them all? You have to get to that place where you go between the eyeballs and have a really honest conversation with people about something. But I find lots of people are frightened to do that. And I think in sales... You just have to be brave enough to really believe in what you're doing, regardless of what it is. And there are gazillions of people on this planet that have got a problem that you know how to solve. If you don't know how to find those people, then make it your mission to find them and own finding the people that have the problem. Because when you do, it's candy from a baby and your business will blow up.
1: Yeah, I love that. I love the fact that it's actually not, you know, because I, I thoroughly believe that. And I found that to be true, certainly in the, the way that marketing's evolved. Because in my set of businesses, particularly now I've got a media platform like this and everything else like that, the, the rapport build, the know, like, and trust. And we'll talk about your podcast in a sec. Um, people just come, right? Because <laughs> they, they've already listened to you for how many hours, right? They know what you're about and then it's not really i have to kind of there's no convincing it's like this is what i do if you've got that problem i've talked about enough then you know i can help you solve it and so the conversation just becomes about the practicalities of that as opposed to any convincing or traditional influencing right it's still influencing but not the way it was done it's, everything's done you know through that communication yeah. so very good well let's talk let's talk about your podcast because um, it's big and you've had Tony Robbins, who's one of my heroes on there. Uh, Dr. John Martini. I'm going to his breakthrough experience in a few weeks' time. So looking forward to that. Uh, Gary Vee, Grant Cardone, all these cool guys. How did you start that? Where did that come from?
0: I'll give it all to Raj Katecha, who's got, um, Raj Kotecha has a podcast called Other People's Podcasts, where him and Fat Man Scoop <laughs> um, look at other people's podcasts together and, and critique them.
1: Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God. Did uh, oh, they, 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 they find you? Did you do one? And they found who's that this, Who's this Spencer Lodge dude? Well, the funny thing, is Raj Kotecha's cousin is Jay
0: Shetty. And so Raj was doing some digital stuff for me. And he's like, you need a podcast. You need a podcast. And I was like, yeah, all right. And so six months later, he kept banging on about it. And I'm like, oh, I, 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 all right, I'll do it. And so we started off the podcast, and we did a couple of episodes. And I started to interview people, and, and I enjoyed the face-to-face process of interviewing people. Um, and then, who was the, the person that I got? I think who was it? Because Tony wasn't the first big person I got. Maybe, maybe it was Grant. I don't know. Um, but I reached out.
1: But how did you? Did you have like? Did you do a number of episodes before you started to get some of the higher-profile guests?
0: Yeah, i've got some higher profile people here i had a great guy here he's a really successful guy here who taught me he went across to america walked away from his family money went across to america to study and he had to make some money there's, there's, there's an arab guy yeah and so he said i got a job selling rape alarms and i'm like what's a rape alarm he goes it's the thing you put around your wrist and you pull it if someone's going to rape you you pull it and it's got a high screeching noise he said, and I used to walk around Walmart car parks waiting for women to come out of Walmart with their trolleys to try and sell them a rain alarm. It's like an Arab in upstate New York walking around Walmart. It
1: wouldn't work after 9-11 very well. It wouldn't have worked very well before that. But pulling this thing and, like, you know, a whistle going off, oh, my God, you know, you'd, yeah. you'd end up with some very um, overzealous police people.
0: Yeah, yeah <laughs> So, so, I had, so I got a couple of people on and, and I started to interview people here and there was a few influencers here and I landed a couple of big names just by being persuasive and then yeah, I think we got Grant to come on the show and, and luckily with that I, I was able to forge quite a nice relationship with him and, and then the Tony Robbins thing came about, he was probably episode number 25 or something, I can't remember, but the episode came about because we knew he was coming to town. And Najahi, who is the, the, the event organizer that sponsor my podcast, um, uh, sponsor my podcast on the proviso that, that they get me guests from their, their, their stable of uh, people they bring over. And so they promised me Tony, and then they said, look, Tony won't do the interview. Uh, we're really sorry, he's just not prepared to do interviews. He's staying with Sheikh Mohammed, so it's a no-no. I was like, hmm. so I found his manager's details, phoned her. She basically told me to bugger off. I was like, right, "That doesn't work," and then I thought I'd try a different approach. And so I sent some flowers to his publicist uh, in New York, and she didn't respond. And then I sent her some cupcakes, and she said, "You shouldn't have sent me flowers. I don't like flowers, but I love cupcakes. What do you need?" And I said, "I just want him to come on the podcast. I'll do anything. I'll go anywhere. I'll be anywhere. Please let him come on the podcast." And she said to me, "Right, make a video, and I will give it to the stewardess on his private jet." and she'll play it for him and if he likes it then you've got a chance i can't control anything apart from that anyway so we made a video jumps up and down screened it's not about resources about resourcefulness tony you taught me that Okay, i'm not letting you come to dubai unless you let me interview you and uh he watched the video and he goes who is this nutcase and this um,
1: mental oh and then my god it,
0: it, yeah it, and he came on and he was he was he was way better than you'd imagine. He was lovely, he stayed around for a couple of hours after we filmed in the studio for the guests that were there to sit and talk to them and do little videos and chats. And he was just magical. And then from then, it, uh, I had the leverage of Tony to be able to ask anybody I wanted to come on the show. Um, and we got through some people. Why was,
1: why was Tony important to you?
0: Because Tony had a big impact on my life in the 90s and then in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And mid yeah, 90s was the biggest impact with a five CD set called Get the Edge. It, it was, it was life changing for me. Yeah. And so once I, uh, and, and that's all I listened to in my car. That I, I had a CD stacker and um, in, my, in the boot of the car, I was cool.
1: A six, a six CD stacker, yeah. I think, or like you could get the big 10 ones, which I've got no idea why you'd have that. Yeah. But I think I, <laughs> It's funny. had
0: yeah, yeah, six CD stacker. I had five CDs from Tony. I think I had Shania Twain or Phil Collins in the other one. Yeah,
1: <laughs> well, he, he, I mean, people who listen to the, listen to this show know that he's had probably the most profound impact on my life. Certainly my decision to leave the private equity world, which I know you and I discussed, uh, and then to move into kind of this different world, which has got similarities to it, but has much more kind of the balance between both achievement and fulfillment. So that's why I wanted to know. But yeah, uh, that's incredible. And so that just opened up everything else. And, and what's the vision now? I mean, you've had some great guests on there. You obviously love doing the show. You know, that comes across, and I encourage everyone to, to go and listen to the the Spencer Lodge podcast. What's What's next for you with this?
0: So what has actually happened is that I, I, got, I got a little bit tired of the whole rags to riches um, stories. They, I didn't get tired, was, they, they, were, they were repetitive and I wanted my audience to be engaged with something that was resonated with them in a, in a different way. And there was a documentary on Netflix called In Fear of 13 where there was a guy called Nick Yaris who was on death row for 20 years for a crime he didn't commit. And I watched the, 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 the documentary and it blew me away. And so I just reached out and asked him if he'd come on the show. He said yes, Um, he came on the show. And we did that first, that, that episode we did live and the audience were just in pieces. It was just such a powerful piece of content that he created with me that we then did another episode. And from then I was like, I like this stuff. I want to know more people that have been through really tough experiences and and have turned something out of that into something positive positive. and so i started to look for people that had been through tragedy so casey piper was a good example of somebody you know she was had acid porn down her throat and on her face by her boyfriend mm-hmm. and tulsi vaggiani other people had been through really tough situations really tough situations yet they were positive and focused and wanted to help others and they wanted to they wanted to be valuable to others and to me that was just like wow and then it started to get a little bit deeper and started to go into areas that I'm very passionate about, which is um, sex trafficking, child slave labor. And, and so I started to find people that had been on those types of journeys. And while some of the episodes are heavy, um, I just believe that people need to know. Um, and then also there were explorers as well. I mean, I'm a climber. So, you know, Sir Randall Fiennes came on, Sir Chris Bonington came on and then for me,
1: it's just like, whoa, these are big people to me. And then- I was to say, well, they're heroes, aren't they? I mean, that's like, you know, that's, that's, that's one of the things that I talk about. Like you get to meet people that, I don't know, before I started doing this, I would never have met, right? You know, we probably wouldn't have connected right in this sort of way. And then you've got your heroes and then you've just got these amazing stories. Like, you know, I, I, I sometimes get very emotional when I'm interviewing because I, I get really into it, like the hairs go up on my arms, and you know all that sort of stuff. But it's such a gift, right? You know, I, I can't imagine a life before whatever we call this, right? You know, um, this this level of connection. I haven't, I can't imagine a life before that. Now, uh, yeah, you're right.
0: That. I can't either. I, there was one other guy that I interviewed that, that that made, and he said, "This is the power of podcasting." Okay, for everyone that's listening that doesn't have a podcast, this is the power of podcasting. I interviewed a guy called Leon Logothetis. He is the star of a TV show called The Kindness Diaries on Netflix. Leo, Leo, Leon travels around the world on his motorbike or in his Volkswagen Beetle, and he relies on the kindness of others. He can accept food, shelter, or, or fuel, but he can't accept money. And when he experiences an extreme act of kindness, he repays it with a life-changing gift. And I'd urge you all to go and watch the show. It's, it's, wow, I haven't and, seen this,
1: I'm done. This is, is going to be my, my weekend viewing he made, he made <laughs> two
0: series. And, and honestly, he's, he, he comes from one of the richest families in Greece, he's British, but he comes from one of the richest families in Greece and you would never know, and he never fit in. He was a black sheep and he, he, he left the family, but he, he's so clunky and so mechanical that he just doesn't come across as a presenter at all. But that's what's charming about him, you know, the fact that he doesn't look like he's, he's very good at it. And, 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 and it's beautiful to watch. Anyway, I interviewed him. At the end of the show, I said to him, I'm a little bit jealous, Leon. He's like, why? I said, because you've got a TV show and I haven't. And he just looked at me straight in the eye and he went, why not? And he called me out on it. I was like, um, because, you know, when I was 16, I thought you needed to have a degree in journalism to go into TV. And he just went, right. And, and, and so that's what stopped me ever doing it ever since kind of stuff. You know what I mean? And he's like, yeah, right. So, so anyway, why haven't you got a TV show? And he literally, I, I couldn't, I had no words. That was just like mumbling nonsense. And then he said, if you really want a TV show, I'll give you an hour of my time every week for the next six weeks. We'll brainstorm together. And if together we can come up with something, then I'll get the producers and the directors involved and we'll see if we can make it. Oh, that's awesome. So six weeks into it, there's all the directors and producers on the on the Zoom. We come up with seven different ideas. They create some stuff around it. They they fly here to Dubai. They meet with me to see what, what I'm like in person. And we start filming in May for the TV show that I'm going to make through their production company.
1: And, and, and what's it called?
0: So it's called Goal 17. That. <laughs> yeah, Sorry. It's called Goal 17. And I can't give too much away, but it's very closely linked with the United Nations sustainability goals. So what, this is what started it. I wanted to do a documentary, uh, okay, on um, child slave labor and sex trafficking. I wanted to do a documentary on that. And the child slave labor thing is a problem, um, because they said to me, look, have you ever had a death threat? And I'm like, sorry? They said, have you ever had a death threat? Because if you do this, you're gonna get death threats. And I was like, why? They said, because this is a bigger industry than drugs. This is a bigger industry than you imagine. You know, people get sold and bought over and over again. Drugs get sold once. So please understand, this is a dangerous world. And for your own first TV show, it's just probably not the place you should be going. And we're involved in it too. So we'll, we've got, you know, the, the issues that go with it. Maybe we can, in one of the episodes of your series, we can touch upon that. But In the in the series, we can deal with all of the goals of the United Nations sustainability. Um a strategy that have to be achieved by 2030 so cutting a long story short i am going to address each of those goals i'm going to go somewhere and find somebody that's doing something about those goals and then i'm going to get my suit on and i'm going to go find a company to support them and so in each episode i go finding a company to support the cause of somebody working at grassroots level somewhere in the world
1: wow man that's awesome Oh, there's so many things I could unpack with that, you know, if, if I go back to the beginning of our conversation and you talked about how you got that job, you know where was it your your grandfather and that guy's father? I forget the exact yeah, thing that guy's father and my
0: grandfather, yeah
1: um, and the grit and resilience to make that happen, right? You know, you could have easily just been told by the recruiter that you never got the job, but you didn't right yeah. <laughs> you know, and then that opened up everything else we spoke about after that. and then there's a couple of other times, like even even you know asking the question, having the conversation it all kind of dovetails back to some principles and values of you, Spencer, of how you've made these things happen in your life. Really, really cool. I mean, it's, 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 I knew the conversation we'd have would be pretty fun, but the depth of it is, is incredible. So I just want to say thank you, mate, for coming on scale up your business. I love the fact that we don't kind of really, you know, script this stuff. We just chat. Um, but it's been absolutely amazing, mate. So thank you very much. Thank
0: you very much for having me on the show. I'm looking forward to getting your
1: mind.